1 and 2. And God inspired Paul to write these words. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free, has set you free from the law of sin and death. I want you to see uh, something. This, uh, this is the hat of shame. Every year at, uh, on our annual family vacation, we, we hold the, um, the Collins Invitational Golf Tournament. It is I, it is uh, our two sons and our son-in-law. The, um, it's a, the tournament is a really big deal. You may have heard of it, the Collins Invitational. The competition is fierce. The tension is palpable. And um, every year we, we don't think so much, we don't worry so much about who wins. And this probably says something about our family. It's not about who wins. It's about who loses. Every year, uh, the one who loses, who comes in last of the four, the following year for the Collins Invitational Golf Tournament has to wear the hat of shame. And you might be wondering, Travis, why are, why are you holding uh, the hat of shame? <laughs> because this year at the tournament, I have to wear in the clubhouse and on the course, I have to wear the hat of shame. Have you ever felt like you were wearing the hat of shame? Some signifier that you came in last in the game of who can live life best? That people can just look at you and know that you've done something bad, something that embarrasses you? Have you ever felt like people could see into your soul and see the secrets and the skeletons that hide there? Today, we're going to talk about shame. In the Middle East, people see shame a little differently than we do. In the Middle East, shame is a public thing. So that if, if someone does something wrong, they bring shame to their family or their clan or their community. So everyone is shamed. And then there has to be something to restore the honor of the community or the family or the clan. It's a social, public thing. In our culture, shame is more private. It is a private emotion. It is something that we internalize, that we carry around uh, inside. Now, we're going to make a distinction between guilt and shame in the world of recovery, in the, in the world of psychology, and in mental health. They make an important and appropriate distinction between guilt and shame because guilt is a good thing. God has wired all of us with a, a conscience. So everybody, even those who are not yet born into his family through Jesus, are, we have a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. And so that conscience is sometimes pricked with a sense of guilt, that this is wrong. And that's a good thing. It's like pain. You know, pain is a good thing. Pain says, 
Get your hand off the heater or you're going to do worse damage to your hand. hand uh, pain, when you, you ever stepped on a nail and you recoil so quickly, maybe you even fell because the, there's an immediate signal sent to the brain that pain that says, this is a really dangerous situation and if you don't recoil, then uh, it, this could go all the way through your foot. Pain is a, is a good thing. Guilt is a good thing. So we're, we're taking a test and we're tempted to cheat and, or, or maybe we're, we're filling out our income taxes and we're tempted to cheat and, and we feel guilt and so we, we tell the truth even though it costs us a grade or maybe a little money. Or maybe we've blown up at a coworker or a friend or a family member and we feel guilt and so we go back and try to make things right. We apologize. We, we ask for forgiveness. Guilt is a good thing. Shame, on the other hand, is very different. Guilt is a gift from our Creator. Shame is the curse of the enemy, the evil one, the devil, known in Job as the accuser. Guilt is about our behavior. Guilt says, I have done something wrong. Shame says, I am a bad person. Shame says, I, I am bad. I am a nobody and I'll never be a somebody. Shame says, I am dirty and I'll never be clean. Shame says, I can't fight it and I can't hide it. I'm just a bad person. I've learned so much from people in recovery. We had a big recovery ministry in Richmond and I learned so much from the leaders, the teachers in that ministry. That part of the distinction, the important distinction in the recovery community, those people who are struggling with addiction, is to learn the difference between guilt and shame. And somewhere along the way I made this note from some, somewhere in the 10-step program. That the 10-step program turns, tries to turn shame into guilt that says, you are not at the core of who you are, awful. You have done some bad things. But shame says, I'm helpless. Guilt says, I've done something bad, but I can, I can do better. Shame says, you are hopeless. Guilt says, yes, you've done something bad, but you can do better. You see the distinction for somebody who's trying to recover from an addiction? Shame says, you are loveless and worthless. Guilt says, yes, there are some things you should have done differently, but there is hope. Shame is not something that God wants you to live with. In fact, in Isaiah 54, there's this beautiful passage about the redeeming love of God. And it says in Isaiah 54, you will not remember the shame of your youth. Some of us are still living with a sense of shame over decisions made when we were teenagers in college. Some of our shame comes from decisions, behaviors as adults when we were old enough to certainly know better. Whether it's a youthful indiscretion or an embarrassing moment as, as an adult, God's purpose, God's intention for you is that you are freed from that overwhelming sense of shame. During the 2017 and 2018 baseball seasons, the Houston Astros were cheating. They were stealing signals. They had a, a video camera out in the outfield that would uh, videotape the, um, the catcher who gives signs, of course, to the pitcher to show whether it's a you know, throw a curveball or a fastball or a changeup or whatever. And so they, they were watching it. They had monitors in the 
dugouts. So when they would see what the catcher was, what the pitcher was about to throw, they would signal by often by banging on something what the pitch was going to be so that their batter would know what was coming. Well, when they got caught, the Houston Astros were in big trouble and, and baseball fans were irate, of course, especially because they won the World Series in 2017, largely perhaps because they were stealing signs. <clears throat> baseball fans still are mad at the Astros. In October, October 15, 2020, the Astros were playing in the American League Championship Series out in San Diego. There weren't many people in the park because of COVID-19, and so they all heard it, the voice. The voice that was coming not from the announcer over the PA system, but a mysterious male voice coming from who, know, who knew where. And it said, attention, this was in the middle of the fourth inning, Attention, members of the Houston Astros organization that participated in the sign-stealing scandal of 2017 and 18. You are all a bunch of cheaters. As it turns out, it was Tim Kantner. Tim is a big baseball fan whose workplace is in a high-rise that overlooks center field at San Diego Stadium. He had gotten a big megaphone and was taking advantage of the quietness of the stadium to call them out. And he didn't just say that, he called them out by name. Carlos Carrera, you are a cheater. Shame on you. Jose Altuve, you are a cheater. Shame on you. Not just you're guilty, but shame, shame on you. Some of us hear the whisper, maybe the shout, of that voice. From somewhere comes the voice that says, shame, shame on you. Not just you did bad, but you are bad. Not just you did something immoral, but at the core of who you are, you are an Im immoral person. Not just you did something despicable, but you are at, at your core despicable. The voice that says you not only did bad things, but you are loveless and worthless and helpless and hopeless. That voice can come from lots of places. From some, it comes from the memory of growing up in a very strict home, where just the slightest veering from the straight and narrow resulted in shame. For some of us, the voice comes from growing up in an abusive home, where the voice maybe of an unreasonable mother or father said things like, you are stupid. You'll never amount to anything. And those voices are hard to outlive. Some of us have such high expectations of ourselves that when we don't meet our own expectations, we we beat ourselves up, we heap shame on our own shoulders. Sometimes the voice that says shame on you comes direct from the evil one, the enemy, the devil, the accuser, because he knows if he can make you feel shame, he can limit your effectiveness, your, your impact for good. So what is the answer to shame? Well, at least one answer is to understand the 
the balance of guidelines and grace. Guidelines and grace. And the book of Romans, from which we read a moment ago, can help us. Romans is a deep, deeply theological, philosophical book. It is full of profundities and complexities that, bab- that baffle the best of Bible scholars. But we have to study it because it helps us understand this balance of, of guidelines and grace. Romans is helpful in understanding shame. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the message translation, it reads like this. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. You don't have to feel condemned. You do not have to feel shamed. I want you to hear Romans 6, 14 and 15. If you have your Bibles open, turn there. If not, just listen. And I want you to notice the interplay between two words, law and grace. Romans 6, 14 and 15. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Notice that Paul says you are under grace, not the law, but he still says the law is important. The law has not become irrelevant. The law represents the first five books of the Bible where we find guidelines, the guidelines for living. But, but God inspires Paul to add, to bring alongside those guidelines, to bring alongside this beautiful reality of grace. God's unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love. And when we hold those two together, guidelines and grace, we become people who understand that God loves us so much that He's given us guidelines for the good living of life, moral and ethical guidelines that we cannot ignore and live life at its best. But alongside those guidelines, God inspired Paul to bring grace, unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love, love that is so amazing, we cannot be good enough to earn it or bad enough to forfeit it. And so we live like people who say, yes, there are guidelines and I'm not always going to live up to them. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fall. But when I do, I will not be shamed. I will just feel guilty. I'll know I shouldn't have done that. And I can make it right. If I fall, I can get back up. Grace, grace alongside guidelines reminds us that we have hope, that we are not hopeless or helpless or loveless or worthless. Listen, grace without guidelines breeds irresponsibility. You with me? Grace without guidelines breeds irresponsibility, but guidelines without grace breeds shame. Grace without guidelines breeds irresponsibility. Guidelines without grace breeds shame. And so God calls us through Scripture to hold these two intention, guidelines, God's standards for living, God's ethical and moral rules, if you will, and grace, a love so amazing we cannot be good enough to earn it, a love so amazing we cannot be bad enough to forfeit it. 
Romans teaches us to hold in balance guidelines and grace. Our first church was Lucas Grove Baptist Church near Upton, Kentucky. Years ago when I was talking about abuse, I told a story about the family that lived in the trailer, the mobile home just across the road. There was always some tumult, it seemed, over there. But we had tried to befriend the family, and a couple of times when things had gotten really rough, uh, the, there was a mom that lived there with her two girls. But there was a live-in boyfriend that came pretty often. He, he, they spent most of his time there. And, and often there was, there was trouble. Sometimes they'd be over at our house for their own protection. But there was one time when the boyfriend got really out of hand and, the, and the, his girlfriend with the two girls decided she'd had enough. So I spent an entire day helping her get a restraining order against the boyfriend who was dangerous and abusive. We spent an entire day in Elizabethtown, Kentucky at the courthouse trying to get that done. And then that night, I was going out for something, drove by, and the boyfriend's car was right there back in the driveway. When I saw her next, I asked her, why did you let him come back? She answered, I don't deserve no better. She lived under what Paul called that low-lying dark cloud of shame. She had the feeling that not only have I done bad things, but I don't deserve no better because I am loveless and worthless and hopeless and helpless. Do you see how the accuser had trapped her so that her image of herself was that of an ugly, dirty, worthless person that don't deserve no better than this guy who hurts me? The accuser wants you to live in that kind of shame because if you do, he knows he can limit your impact for good. But that voice that says shame on you is not the voice of God. It is a voice of a painful past and profound regret amplified by the voice of the accuser who who says, shame, shame on you. In your worship guides, would you find your worship guides, please? On the third page, there's a long quote, and I want you, it's on the third page, it's right under sermon notes. If you're watching by TV or, or internet, I'm going to read slowly, please pay attention. This is a long quote by John Claypool, I just want you to have it, keep it. We all have shadows and skeletons in our backgrounds. Would you let that sink in? We all have shadows and skeletons in our background. There is not a person here who would want all our laundry aired. So you, my friend, are not alone. We all have shadows and skeletons in our backgrounds. But listen, the moment the focus of your life shifts from your badness to his goodness, and the question becomes not what have I done, but what can he do, and that releases, then release from remorse can happen. 
Miracle of miracles, you can forgive yourself because you are forgiven. Accept yourself because you are accepted and begin to start building up the very places once torn down. There's grace to help in every time of trouble. That grace is the secret to being able to forgive ourselves. Trust it. If you are living under that dark, low-flying cloud of shame, and there are three passages of Scripture I want you to remember. The first one is Romans 8.1. We read that a moment ago. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. You do not have to feel shamed. The second one is John 3.17. We all know John 3.16. This next verse says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be rescued, saved, redeemed. The third passage is that one that Billy read a moment ago. If you look up shame in the dictionary, there ought to be a picture of that woman caught in adultery, thrown at the feet of Jesus by those pompous religious leaders, shamed by these self-righteous men with stones in their hands, shamed by the fact that she'd gotten caught in the very act of adultery, shamed by the fact that she was on the ground at the feet of the one that many said was the Messiah. Shame. Shame on you. You know how Jesus said to the pious and pompous religious leaders, if if you don't have any sins, or, or let the one who has no sin throw the first stone, and they dropped their rocks and they slithered away. And when they were all gone, Jesus asked the woman on the ground, is there no one here to condemn you? Not one, she said. And Jesus told her, well, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. You see what he did? Guidelines and grace. Go and sin no more. That's the guidelines. He didn't let her off scot-free. Guidelines. But grace, I do not condemn you. At the core of who you are, you are not, you are not loveless and worthless and helpless and hopeless. He did not heap shame on her. He freed her from shame, guidelines, and grace. We were in, in Jerusalem over 10 years ago. I was taking a class, and a couple of the class, my classmates and I went to the tomb. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem, there are at least two, pla- there are two places where People will take you to, this is where Jesus died, this is Calvary, and the tomb is nearby. The one that most scholars agree was probably the actual Calvary, and and maybe the tomb, at least in the vicinity of the tomb, is inside the walls of old Jerusalem, and a giant cavernous church has been built over it. There's a place where you walk up the stairs to a stone where it looks like, uh, and it's, it's enshrined, but could very well be uh, the place where Jesus died. And then you go down below, go down deep into the church where there's a a tomb, and and even the tomb is enshrined in a, a, a big building inside the church. And there are priests who guard the tomb. When we were there, there was a long line. You're given just a few seconds to go in alone and then come out, and it's strictly enforced. As we were walking in line toward the tomb, one of the priests spotted us. 
And he came hurrying toward us, shouting at us so that everybody in there heard and saw. Waving his finger like this, he shouted at us, Forbidden! Forbidden! When he got to us, he pointed down to my friend Dan, who had on short pants. Apparently, you can't go into the tomb with short pants on. But the feeling, I still feel, the shame of, of, of a priest running toward us, saying, Forbidden! And some of you know that, that voice. You've been in a bad relationship, and you want, here's the opportunity at a good relationship, but there's a voice that comes from somewhere that says, Forbidden! You messed this one up so badly, you do not deserve another. Some of you have lost your job in a, a less than honorable way. But you have an opportunity at a new job, and you step into it, and there's a voice somewhere that says, Forbidden! You do not deserve this. There's someone watching, perhaps, who wants to go to a church, but you feel dirty and ugly, and, and there's a voice that comes from somewhere that says, forbidden, you're not good enough to go to church. There's someone in the church who's been invited to a leadership role to serve on a committee or ministry team or something as a deacon, some leadership role, and, and you're, you're about to step into that, and then there comes this voice that says, forbidden. That is not the voice of God. That is the voice called in Job the accuser. The voice of Jesus still says, as he did on earth, Come. Come, those of you who are weary and heavy burdened. Come. Those of you whose souls are thirsty. Come and find rest. Come and follow me. Isaiah 54. You do not have to live in the shame of your youth or the shame of your adulthood. You can be freed from the low, flying, dark, cloud of shame.